Let's turn again to the final book in the New Testament, the book that we call The Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 13. We're talking about a brief span in human history, just a few years prior to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, that event that Lord Tennyson calls the far-off great divine event toward which all creation moves, what Jesus referred to as the end of the times, the time when our Lord comes back to set history straight. And uh, as we have said over and over again, the book of Revelation is concerned with uh, a brief period of human history, just uh, seven years prior to the coming of, of our Lord Jesus. And the primary focus of the book is on the last three and a half years of that period, described variously in the book of Revelation as 42 months or 1,260 days or time, times, and half a time. Uh, each of these uh, figures interpreted as three and a half years. And uh, last week we saw from chapter 13 that in this last three-and-a-half-year period, a great power will rise in the West, embodied in, uh, in one person who gathers around him ten other nations from what used to be the Roman Empire, the old uh, uh, imperial form of the Roman Empire. And uh, he, these nations give away their, their sovereignty, they exchange nationalism for internationalism, and there is a, a combine of ten nations that arise in Western Europe and, I believe, in the United States. And this, uh, this form, this revived form of the Roman Empire or Western civilization as we know it today is the great threat in the world. This is the major power, as John uh, sees in his vision, that exercises authority over nations and tribes and and uh, kingdoms. It struck me this past week as I was thinking about this uh, final form of the Roman Empire that the great threat in this time is not communism but Western imperialism. I don't know why it had never occurred to me before, but uh, if you stop and think through what we've seen in the book of Revelation, this is clearly the case. Apparently, as we move closer to the time, the uh, the real pressure in the world will not come from communism, but rather from the West. That's striking when you think about it. There is nothing in, in any of the scriptures that, uh, that says anything about, about communism or uh, communist ideology. It's simply not, uh, not there. And apparently, as we draw closer to the end of the time, communism will not be the major threat. Now, Russia does appear to come... Uh, come to, has a position of power in this final time. Russia is described as the great power in the north, uh, foreseen by Ezekiel in chapters 37 and 38. And in Daniel 11, Daniel refers to the king of the north. But Russia herself is not the major force. It's the west. And we can expect, as we move closer to the coming of our Lord, to see the decline of communism. And interestingly enough, that's what's happening. Communist, uh, commun uh, communism is a house divided against itself. That's true today. That appears to be the strategy that the Lord uh, employs to keep the uh, full manifestation of lawlessness from being expressed. And uh, we can see what's happening today to Russia and her satellites. They are a divided house. And as Jesus put it, a divided house cannot stand. So um, the, it appears that Russia is not the major threat. 
Now, it seems to me that there's a reason why communism is in decline. Communist leaders, the thinkers and statesmen of uh, that particular ideology through the years, have failed to take into account the, the essential nature of man. Uh, it makes no difference who you talk about. We can refer to any of the opinion makers of communism, Lenin and Marx, or any of those through whom it's been implemented, Mao and Ho Chi Minh, any of, any of these forms. In each case, they are atheistic, and they have failed to take into account that we as men are essentially religious. We are incurably religious, and uh, without religion we cannot live. Uh, G.K. Chesterton years ago pointed out that uh, it's even impossible to, uh, to swear convincingly without being religious. Uh, you have to mention the name of God. You can't uh, somehow a round oath ripped off in the name of natural selection or uh, slimy primeval ooze just doesn't uh, get it. And uh, this seems to be a, a, a condition that prevails worldwide. We are, we are deeply religious people. We can't do without God. And uh, it's been pointed out by a number of people that even atheists seem to be inveighing against something that's very deeply entrenched uh, within them. And it's this failure, I think, to recognize the essential nature of man, his religious nature, that spells the doom of communism. Now, I don't mean that communism is not a threat. It is. And uh, we're playing this game of international chicken today, deciding who's going to push the button first and uh, disintegrate one another, and, and it's very obvious that uh, communism is a threat. But it seems from a scriptural standpoint that they will cease to be less and less of a threat because they have failed to take into account the nature of man. Now, what we see in chapter 13 is Satan's masterpiece. Satan learns from history. He is not omniscient. He does not know everything. But uh, he's a keen observer of human history, and apparently he discovers that... Uh, that he cannot capture the world through godless, materialistic uh, communism. There has, to be a, there has to be another form of totalitarian government. And so in this end time, he puts together a satanic masterpiece, a state church combine that will rule the world. And what we have in the last uh, verses of chapter 13 is a description of the religion of the last days. Let's begin reading with verse 11. Ogden Nash said, uh, the 1L Lama, he's a priest. The 2L Lama, he's a beast. But I will bet a silk pajama that there is no 3L Lama. But uh, here, while you don't have a 3L Lama, what you have is a beast who is a priest. And uh, he's described in verses 11 and following. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the, the wound of the sword and has come to life. This is the revived form of the Roman Empire. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, 
and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of man, and his number is 666. Now, there are a number of things that catch our attention here. The beast, again, is described uh, uh, symbolically, and I think the beast represents not only the religious system of that day, but it, again, the system is embodied in one individual who is a great apostate high priest who apparently arises uh, out of Palestine. If the symbolism of the book of Revelation is consistent, the beast coming out of the earth would suggest that this is a Jew, an apostate Jew, one who gives no heed to the God of his fathers, or, as Daniel puts it, the one desired of women, that is Messiah. And uh, he uh, is the high priest of this great world religion that will prevail in, in the end times. Uh, he's later described in Revelation as riding upon the first beast, Western civilization, the revived Roman Empire which would, re would represent a union of church and state governed in the final days by, uh, by the church, by this religious uh, force as it's embodied in, in this individual. Now, the man is described for us in verse 11 as having two horns like a lamb, and he speaks like a dragon. Uh, a lamb is an innocent, appearing, uh, innocuous, defenseless creature. And this is apparently the way this man will appear. He will not seem to be a threat. He is anti-Christ in the sense that he is a substitute Christ. He will probably be a gentle, kind, loving, socially aware, sensitive uh, person. The kind of person that uh, all of us is drawn to. He will be like Christ in his demeanor. Uh, appear to be innocent and harmless. But we're told he speaks as a dragon. Now, uh, most of us don't know how dragons speak, although some of you women might say you haven't heard my husband when he gets up in the morning. But uh, if you have read any mythology concerning dragons, you'll know that dragons do not roar. They uh, rather are very cunning and sly, highly intelligent. They um, are bent on deceit. And it's this that uh, John has in mind when he describes the uh, lamb as speaking like a dragon. He's highly intelligent, but he is deceitful. He's a liar. He has the same murderous intent as the, as the dragon who is behind him. And uh, he's out to destroy by virtue of his, uh, his innocent uh, appearing manner, his gentle demeanor. Now, this is uh, one of Satan's favorite ploys. He tells us that, that John, or Paul tells us that Satan appears as an angel of light. He doesn't uh, appear at your front door in a pair of baggy red underwear and a pitchfork and, and bang on the door and say, Hi, I'm the devil. I've come to destroy you. Uh, no, he, he doesn't. He always looks good initially. You know, we as, we as Christians, I think, grow up believing that all Christians are good and all non-Christians are bad. We teach people that. And then we send our uh, young men and women off to college, and right away they encounter a prof who is genuinely loving, 
and kind and thoughtful and concerned about uh, the state of the world. And uh, he invites students into his home, and uh, he's very uh, hospitable and has a, a good family, but uh, he speaks like a dragon. Down inside, he's a deceiver. He has no use for God or for the things of God. And this uh, apparently is one of Satan's finest tools for undermining the faith of, of the unsuspecting. And this is the way this, this uh, high priest of religion in the final day appears. Now, his motive is given to us in verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast. That's the political system described in the first ten verses of chapter 13. In his presence, that is, he represents him. He's in cahoots with him. He's aligned with him in his, his philosophy. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it. And as we've seen, that's a moral class. Those are people who uh, they are basically materialistic. The, their horizons extend to this world, and that's all. They mind earthly things, as Paul puts it. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, this is his, uh, this is his intent, to cause the world, the nations of the world, to give up their sovereignty and uh, to vote away their rights and uh, to be subsumed under this greater power in the West. As Daniel describes it, there will be ten nations, and uh, uh, seven of them will give over their sovereignty willingly. There will be three nations that apparently will resist, and this little horn, this political power, will put them down violently in order to come to power. But most of the nations of the world will simply uh, give away their rights. And uh, this, is his, this is his aim, to get them to worship the first beast to idolize the political system that uh, will prevail in, in this time. And then in verse 13 following, there is a description of his methods. He performs great signs so that he even, even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, uh, interpreters have variously uh, approached this passage. Some believe that uh, he uses scientific technology in order to accomplish his uh, aims. Perhaps this is some symbolic description of uh, lasers shot from outer space or something of that nature. But for myself, I think it's better to take it at face value that this man is empowered to work miracles. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that uh, the man who makes his appearance at this time will would, would deceive even the elect if it's possible because he is a miracle worker. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes this man of lawlessness as one who works miracles. Now, that ought to alert us to the fact that because someone can heal and raise the dead and uh, give sight to the blind, he is not necessarily of God. Uh, the Jews of Moses' day were warned in Deuteronomy 13 that there would be those who would appear who seemed to have the power to work miracles and some who actually did work miracles, but uh, if their message was not aligned with Scripture, they were not to be listened to. Now, uh, this man apparently has the power to authenticate his uh, position as a prophet, prophet by perhaps raising the dead and causing fire to come down out of the sky, and uh, he will uh, excite admiration for the beast through, uh, through his miracles. And then we're, we're told in verse 15 that there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast 
that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He is apparently able to animate the symbol that he makes that represents the beast. There is some symbolic representation that will be carried worldwide, and uh, this uh, will be a sign of allegiance to the political system. And evidently he has the power to give this symbol life. Now, I have no idea what John is describing here. Uh, if we are living in these days, we will, we will know. We'll be able to recognize what John is talking about. But from our vantage point in history, we simply do not know. But uh, he is able to give life to this beast, to the image of the beast, so that it, it, it can speak and exercise control over those who do not worship the image of the beast. Now, here is where his strategy emerges. Here we see the iron hand in the velvet club. Though he appears to be a, uh, a lamb, his goal is to, is to seek and secure subservience to the beast. He wants to institute a totalitarian system which everyone must bend the knee to. Everyone must worship the beast. And all of his miracles, all of his kindness, everything that he does is designed to secure that sort of allegiance to the political system. Now, it's interesting in thinking back through history, that's precisely what all of the dictators of our times and, and throughout history have done. Now, if you think, for example, of, of uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Hitler came to power in a, in a power vacuum. The uh, entire German nation was uh, reeling from the results of the First World War. Uh, the nation had been devastated. There was no hope. And uh, along came Hitler, who, uh, who barely graduated from uh, elementary school, and he captured the entire nation because they were without hope. And here someone came who appeared to give them hope. And uh, he had a symbol, the swastika. And he had a message, the, uh, the superiority of the Aryan race. And it gave the, the German nation hope. But once the nation was on the move, then you saw the iron fist uh, inside the velvet glove. And all dissent was, uh, was stamped out. Now, this is apparently what this man will, will do. And uh, he uh, secures... Uh, uh, there are various means that he employs to, uh, to control the nations. This may occur during a time of famine where it's difficult to get food. And so in order to get food, you have to bear the mark of the beast. He describes that mark in verse 16 as a, a mark on the right hand and on the forehead. Now, you'll notice I have the mark of the beast this morning. I, I ran into a wall. I thought that would be appropriate for an audio-visual aid this morning. Now, we need to understand what this mark is. We're told that the mark will be found on the forehead and uh, on the hand, or on the uh, uh, right hand, in verse 16. And we're told what the mark is in verse 18. It's the number 666. Now, this is a, a symbol that has intrigued people for centuries. In the first century, the uh, commentators had decided that this was Neron Caesar, and uh, he bore the number 666. They have various ways of, uh, of calculating numbers in the ancient world. This is a well-known uh, uh, custom. In Pompeii, there's a little piece of, little bit of graffiti on the wall that says, I love her, her, her whose number is 545. 
Um, someone has said that's her phone number, but but not really. That was the number of the girl, probably her initials. They would take uh, letters and assign numbers to them. And uh, there have been various attempts to try to determine who 666 is. Uh, it would be important that we know because this is the final uh, manifestation of evil in, in, this, uh, in this man. Uh, some have felt uh, it might be Mr. Mr. Kissinger. Some have thought it might be Mr. Gaddafi. Uh, there are many, many uh, shots in the dark. Uh, for myself, I, uh, I think we do not know and we cannot know who it refers to. Uh, John has veiled the individual in, uh, in symbolic terms, and we simply can't know. I do not think the number 666 refers to a name. I think it refers to an ideology. The number of six is the number of man in this apocalyptic literature. And uh, it's consistently used that way in literature outside the Bible. And the number three is the number of God. And so uh, six elevated to the number three is man elevated to the position of God. It's humanism. That's all. It's an ideology. And uh, he's not thinking literally here that those in the end time will bear a mark on their forehead uh, tattooed there or on their right wrist. And that's not the point at all. In the symbolic literature, something on the forehead represents the attitudes and something on the hand represents the actions. And as you'll see in a moment in chapter 14, those who dwell in heaven have the name of the Lord Jesus on their forehead and on their hand. And uh, no one would seriously suggest that in our redeemed bodies we have the name of Jesus written on our forehead and on our hand. No, it's a symbol. Therefore, we do not be, need to be afraid of the number 666 showing up on our credit cards and uh, Social Security numbers and, and whatnot. My uh, phone number, interestingly enough, is 3766607. And uh, it's been suggested that I should change my phone number because that's the mark of the beast. But that's the sort of thing that, that we really don't need to take seriously. Um, there was, um, some of you may have heard, the rumor that was reported widely that uh, the Social Security system now was requiring certain people to be tattooed with a number before they could get their, uh, their Social Security checks. And that was widely circulated and taken quite seriously by a number of Christians. The uh, National Association of Evangelicals has run that thing down, and in each case they find that uh, uh, someone knows someone who knew someone who had an aunt that this happened to. But there is simply no evidence that that sort of thing exists. That's not what we should fear. And for myself, I think it's that kind of derailing that uh, the enemy loves to get us into so that we don't really see what's involved. What John sees is the attitude that man is God. Man is the measure of all things. Man is king. And it's what man does and what man thinks and what man makes with his hands and what man does with his body that counts. And you see, it's possible for us to avoid 666 on our credit cards and still basically become humanists in our thinking. Now, this is apparently what John sees. The whole world has gone mad. This is the madness of misplaced manhood, as, as someone has said. We, we, we are intended to be men and women dependent upon God. And uh, uh, from the very beginning, be beginning, Satan has tried to get us to depend upon ourselves. Count on me and what I can do, what my mind and my education and my personality and my physical strength can do. That's the flesh. 
That's what Paul calls the flesh. It's our, it's, it's our human nature uh, that, uh, that the Lord put to death in the cross. We don't have to count on it any longer. And we shouldn't count on it. We need to count upon God. That's what we were created for. But uh, in this last three and a half uh, years of human history, the world will go mad. Everyone will count upon themselves. Some of you may have seen Frank Tipp or Fred Tippett's article, essay in Time Magazine this last week. Uh, I've forgotten the title of it now. Standing up for number one or something like that. And he quotes uh, Ayn Rand's uh, famous quotation that the primary right uh, in the world is the right of ego. In other words, we, we have the right to toot our own horn and brag about ourselves. And this seems to be the prevailing spirit today when you hear Mr. Iacocco and others saying blatantly and openly and in public, I am the greatest. I, uh, I could do anything. Well, this is the spirit of the age. And apparently this will, this will capture the world. And uh, it's this that, that John envisions. And he says, this is wisdom. When this madness uh, strikes, wisdom will understand, will calculate the number of the beast. Its number is 666. Now the question is, how does one live in a time like this? What should we do? It, we see it coming. And it seems to me that, that all roads lead in this direction. The trends are very apparent to anyone who, who uh, reads world politics. The, uh, we will see a, a rise in the power of the West. We'll see a rise in some religion that will capture the minds of men. And uh, these two forces in union will, will conquer the world. And what are we to do at a time like that? Well, John sees the answer to that question in chapter 14, the first five verses. John says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibates. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. First John sees um, the Lamb. Not a beast like a lamb, but the lamb. The lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the one we saw in chapter 5, who because of his sacrificial death has the authority to run the world. To uh, He's responsible for the affairs of this world and enacting the uh, purposes of God in history. And he's standing on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a, is a uh, geographical location. If you go to Jerusalem today, they will uh, point across the Tyropian Valley, and they'll tell you that's Mount Zion. Actually, the, the uh, hill has been misnamed. In, at some point in history, Mount, the name Mount Zion became affixed to the wrong mountain peak. But uh, if, you, if you visit the Dome of the Mosque, uh, the, uh, 
Mosque of Omar, Dome of the Rock, rather, the Mosque of Omar, you're standing on Mount Zion. That's a geographical location. But in these symbolic books, Mount Zion is a picture of salvation. Uh, in Joel 3, the prophet says, Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and they will be gathered at Mount Zion. And uh, throughout uh, the prophetic books and in the New Testament, Zion is a picture of, uh, of salvation, of deliverance. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, like Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, which is the place of, of salvation. So these gathered around the Lamb here, the 144,000, are those that have been redeemed. They've been saved out of this uh, hellish condition that will prevail in, in the last days. And then they're described here as 144,000. Now, here's where the uh, commentators tend to part company. And uh, for myself, I simply see this as a symbolic picture of the elect, the, the church of this period, comprising, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, as you may know, in the New Testament, the church is frequently referred to in the terms in which it's referred to in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul, for example, in Galatians, describes the church as the Israel of God. And uh, James, in writing to the church, to Christians, describes them as the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. Paul in Romans says that the true Jew is not one who's, who's a Jew outwardly, but one who is a Jew inwardly. Uh, in other words, it's a, it's a matter of the Spirit. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, we become Jews. And... Uh, and there are various other passages in the New Testament that seem to me to make this very clear, that the, uh, that the church is referred to in those terms that are applied to Israel. We're called a holy nation, as Israel was, a kingdom of priests, as Israel was. Over and over again, passages in the Old Testament that, reply, that refer to the church are applied to Israel. Uh, Paul, in, or the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 10, says uh, the new covenant is for us. That is the church. And so it seems to me inescapable that, uh, that, that the church is referred to in these terms. So I simply see the 144,000 here as the church of Jesus Christ gathered around the Lamb in those days. Why 144,000? Well, because they're numbered. God knows who we are. In chapter 7, there were 144,000 that were sealed. And uh, here in chapter 14, they, they're still here. None have been lost. There aren't uh, 143,999. No one has been lost. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. None are lost in the process. And uh, so in these end times, uh, God gathers out, as he has been doing throughout history, uh, a number of people for the purpose of salvation. Now, they're described for us here as those who sing a new song. Um, they hear a voice, a great chorus in heaven. These 144,000 are on earth. They're living during this time. The voice comes from heaven. It's uh, melodious and yet very loud. It's like harpists playing on their harps though like the sound of loud thunder. 
and they sing a new song before the throne, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been purchased or redeemed from the earth. No one else on the earth can sing this song. They uh, hum a tune that no one else can, can sing because only the redeemed can sing this song. Some of you have read Henry David Thoreau's works and you know that rugged old New England individualist who went off to Walden Pond in Massachusetts to think and, and to write. He was totally nonconformist in so much of his thinking, just outraged uh, his times because he was so unconventional. And uh, Thoreau said, as you know, if you want to know why I am the way I am, it's because I march to a different drumbeat. Now, this is true of the 144,000. They simply march to a different drumbeat. They will not conform. Though the whole world is bowing down to the beast, they will not conform. They, uh, they sing another song. They march to a different uh, drumbeat. They sing a different tune. And then they're described in verse 4 as the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibates. Now, don't be offended, women. There's nothing defiling about women, and there's nothing defiling about sexual intercourse within marriage. These are described here as virgins, uh, symbolically. The uh, New Testament has a very high and exalted uh, view of sexual relationships. God is the one who thought it up. It's His idea, and He's for it and supportive of the whole thing within the confines of, of marriage. Uh, he's not speaking literally here of a group of men who have made themselves eunuchs, as Jesus puts it, for the cause of Christ. This is not a special class of people who are more spiritual than any other believers during this time. Uh, the point that uh, is being made here is that these people have not defiled themselves with the harlot of this day. The harlot is the religious system, as we'll see in a moment. They have not bought the lie. They, uh, they, they are not in bed with the harlot, so to speak. They're not going that route, you see. They, uh, they're faithful to the Lord. Throughout all of Scripture, unfaithfulness spiritually is described as adultery, spiritual adultery. And uh, what uh, John is saying is that these people have not prostituted themselves. They have not adulterated their faith. They're loyal to the Lamb. They are, as, as Paul puts it in Corinthians, chaste virgins. They've not been uh, defiled uh, by uh, spiritual unfaithfulness. And we'll see them again in chapter uh, 20 and 21, coming as a bride uh, prepared for the groom, which is the Lord Jesus. Now, the figure's a little different here because it's men who have not defiled themselves, but the idea is, is exactly the same. And then they're described as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They just, whatever the Lamb takes them through, if it's through hardship, if it's through martyrdom, if it's through a difficult marriage, if it's through tough economic situations, they have to endure the economic boycott that exists during these days. Whatever it is, they just follow the Lamb. They're obedient to Him. They do what He says. They listen to Him. As Jesus put it, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. That's what it means to be a Christian. You don't buy into the lie that man is the measure of everything. And all we have to do is pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder, and we can succeed. 
We just follow the Lamb. We do what He asks. We listen to His words and respond in obedience to them, and nobody does it perfectly. And that's why, and I think the figure even gathers up that idea. We may at times not follow perfectly, but, but that's the intent of our heart. We want to. And that's what distinguishes the 144,000. And again, you see, these, this is not a, these are not cadre. They're not uh, commandos, not a special hardcore group within Christendom. The, these are believers during these hard times. They just have the Lord's attitude on all of life. I was talking to a good friend just this past week who's suffered some really catastrophic business reversals. He's almost lost everything. And he's millions of dollars in debt. And he was telling me, uh, it just, he just recently gave his life back to the Lord. And as we were having lunch, he told me, he said, you know, if I'd gone through this uh, a year ago, it would have just torn me apart. But uh, he said, I have discovered the difference between happiness and contentment. He said, I'm not happy with my situation. I'm not happy with, with what's happening to the economy. But I'm content. I'm peaceful. And you see, that's following the Lamb. That attitude will have a tremendous impact upon this man's business associates because this is a time when people are biting their nails and wringing their hands and pacing the floor and uh, developing ulcers and, and going half mad. But here's a man who, who walks through the middle of that situation and he's peaceful. Oh, he's concerned, but he's peaceful. And then furthermore, they're described as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The first fruits was a special offering, a 10% off the top, that was exclusively for God. It was not for secular use. And it's a picture throughout the uh, New Testament of service, loving service, giving up our lives for the Lord's sake. Uh, the church is called the first fruits of God, and the Lord Himself is called the first fruits. It's just a picture of, of loving, giving service. Rendering up our lives and offering to God wherever we go. And finally, in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, he's not here talking about truthfulness in the sense that we normally say no lie. He means they, didn't, they haven't bought the lie. They speak the truth. They proclaim the truth as it's revealed in Scripture. So... Uh, here you have a gathering up of what it means to be one of the 144,000 in these days gathered around Mount Zion, a picture of deliverance. They sing a different tune. They have not succumbed to the harlot. They follow the Lamb in obedience. Their lives are given over to loving service, and they make proclamation of the truth. And that's what we're called upon to be in these times and in the times to come. You know, what we've seen, I, I, to me this has been very clear as we've studied through Revelation, that the events of these last days are not a time when God does totally unique things upon the earth. Strange and bizarre animals turned loose and, and cosmic disturbances unlike anything in history. And no, if, if we think that, then we simply don't understand this book is, is symbolic. What this is is simply the consummation of what's going on now. The, the forces at work in the world today will be, uh, be unleashed to a wider extent. This is what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. It's at work now. 
but will reach its full manifestation and consummation when the Lord uh, just takes his hands off of man and he lets us do what we want and wreak havoc throughout the earth. And man just goes mad, stark raving mad. And John says, what do we do? Well, it's very simple. You just follow the Lamb. Keep listening to Him. Live your lives out in quiet obedience to the truth and loving service to those around you and proclaim the truth. Make proclamation of the truth that will deliver. You see, that's the quiet heroics that mark the true man and woman of God. We want to do something big. We want to stand in the middle of uh, Bronco Stadium and preach to uh, 10,000 people. And if God calls you to do that, then do it. But most of us will be involved in doing quiet acts of obedience in our homes, right where we are. That's why James says that the true test of religion is to visit uh, widows and orphans to do those quiet, unseen acts that no one sees. Um, Gene mentioned earlier Bud Hinkson, who's one of my patron saints. And uh, when I was working with university students uh, down in the San Francisco Bay Area, Bud had lunch with me one day, and he was sitting right across from the table, and he said, Roper, John Wesley said, Give me 100 men. Who, not, who hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I'll change the world. And uh, Bud looked at me at the, with those piercing blue eyes of his, and he said, Roper, come with me and we'll change Europe for Christ. Now, it wasn't God's will for me to go to Europe at that time. But uh, that quotation stuck with me. Give me 100 men and women who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I'll change the world. And I have to ask myself, what are we doing? You know that we have an evangelical consensus in the United States today. Better than 50% of the people in our country claim to be evangelicals. There are thousands of us. And we're not making much impact upon our times. And you know why? It's because I think our actions are misdirected. And I want to say something that will offend some of you, and some of you may leave the church. It happens every once in a while, but I have to speak truth. I do not think that we should dissipate enormous amounts of time fighting communism or doing battle politically. God may call us to do that. That may be the position that God places you. But we should not do those things until we are doing what John calls us to do here. We're demonstrating righteousness right where we are. The thing that really bothers me is that so much of what's going on today in the name of evangelicalism really masks an underlying bitterness and hatred and, uh, and wrath that is not Christ-like. And I say that in love, and I don't want to condemn because I'm probably guilty of many of the same things. But we need to be directed in what we're doing. And as I understand... The revelation of the New Testament about living in tough times. Scripture tells us to do this before we do anything else, to be men and women of faith, to start believing God and counting on Him, and to live our lives out in a righteous and godly and Christ-like way, right where we are, and to give ourselves in acts of loving service to one another and make proclamation of the gospel to people who need to hear it. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing a job. I don't care what else you're doing. And if that sounds harsh, I just want to say it to myself and to all of us so that we will not waste our time. There isn't one of us that wants to 
spin around in some little eddy while the mainstream of God's purposes in the world go on. I don't, and you don't. We want our lives to count. And if they're going to count, we need to do it this way. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy. He says, in the last days, times are going to get tough. Men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, to sum, sum up a long list of characteristics. And he, sa and he says, all right, Timothy, therefore, continue in the things that you have learned from me. That is, go on obeying the apostolic truth that he received from Paul and preach the word. Same priorities that John gives us here. And if we're not doing those things, we're not doing what God has called us to do. It's just that simple. And I say that to myself as well. These are the things that we must do until He comes. God is working out His purpose in spite of all that happens here. Lawless nations in commotion, restless like a storm-tossed ocean, he controls their rage and fury, so His children need not fear. Let our hearts turn to heaven where Christ bides His time in peace, giving Him our heart's affection, one with Him in His rejection, till the present troubles cease. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for our consecrated blunders, for our commitment to things that don't really count in the long run, that have no real ultimate, uh, are not the, the ultimate answers. Teach us, as Paul tells us, to approve the things that are excellent, that is, to have that subtle, that careful sense of, of discrimination that will enable us to do the things that really count. And while we may be called to do other things, Father, keep us doing the first things. And it's our prayer, Father, that we as your people will go out into the world and, and love our enemies, deliver us from our cutting tongues and our harsh manner, help us to treat them as you did and show mercy and pity and to speak the truth to them. We pray that you deliver us from bitterness and anger and our restlessness and our desire for more and for things, our preoccupation with this world and getting ahead in it. And help us to see that, that by our lives, by our words, we can make an impact upon our times. Help us to see the world as you saw it and live in it as you lived. In Jesus' name, amen.